the sound of praise for your Sunday morning. The only one who could ever teach me. Introducing Reverend A.R. Bernard of the Christian Cultural Center. Was a son of a preacher man. And Rabbi Joseph Potasnik of Religion on the Line. The only one who could ever teach me. Now, on Talk Radio 77 WABC, here's the Reb and the Rabbi, where faith matters. I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Rev, I have a new hero in my life. And, uh, you know, I always look for people who are inspiring. And now it's Simone Biles. What she has done this past week in highlighting the trauma of life in her own life and asking people to look at their, their lives, uh, I think is a major moment. Because, you know, we cheer athletes even when they're hurting deeply. We don't care. We want them to win. Winning, you know, you go for the gold, not what was for the good, but the gold. And I think uh, Simone has opened our eyes and our minds uh, to what we need to look at. I, yeah, and it comes on the heels of uh, Naomi Osaka, the tennis player. Mm-hmm. Remember? Yep. Um, she withdrew from Wimbledon because of, uh, you know, challenges that she was having emotionally and, and mentally. And I will tell you. That is something that is at a high rate in this generation, the millennial generation. Remember Ed Muskie years ago, openly cried. Oh, yeah, Ed Muskie, sure. Right, mm-hmm. he cried, and people said, what's wrong with him? You know, <laughs> what's wrong with him? He, he, he's crying. He's a baby. He's not mature. Uh, and that, to me, was a, you know, another one of these moments where we have expectations that are not realistic. Well, I'm glad that we didn't, uh, for the most part, attack uh, Simone Biles, who's done some incredible uh, work, things that haven't been done before in her field, uh, because um, Osaka did get attacked by by some people. So I'm glad that we're we're growing up and maturing and saying, hey, you know, when you have situations like this, you do need to step back and not be afraid of the criticism. Hillel, contemporary of Jesus, that famous quotation: "If I'm not for myself, who will be for me?" And I think all mm. of us, right? We need to look at that. You've got to stand up for what's right for you and not, yeah. you know, look for the adoring, cheering crowd because ultimately you'll pay the price. They won't. Absolutely. Well said, Rabbi. Thank We've you. We've got a guest, Rabbi. We do. Representative Nicole Maliotakis, 11th Congressional District. And uh, she won in the Democratic uh, arena. And I'm sure she has much mm-hmm. to say. So we look forward to that conversation. Where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi. Talk Radio 77 WABC.
Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Tassman. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Reverend, we have with us Congress member Nicole Meliotakis, the 11th Congressional District, uh, who uh, is starting a, a new chapter of life, uh, being in Washington. She was uh, here in Albany for, for many, many years, representing the people of the state of New York. And now she's representing, well, the state of New York, but in a different form. And I think it's even more challenging. Good morning. Welcome, Representative Meliotakis. Oh, it's great to be with both of you. Thank you very much for having me on again. So let me begin by asking this. Do you see in the eyes of the progressives, does America ever do anything right? Or only when we become like Venezuela have we achieved real importance? Well, that's, I think, a very interesting question. I think it's a, it's a timely question. Um, I, I think, unfortunately, people, um, there are some people who perhaps were born in this country who may not have a true appreciation of what it's like to be in this country versus in other places in the world. Uh, because my parents are immigrants, my father comes from Greece, and my mom escaped the communist regime of Fidel Castro of Cuba, um, I think I have a very... Um, Important perspective. I think it's not. I don't think it's unique in the sense because there are many people, obviously, that share this perspective. But one that perhaps people like the members of the squad or the far left uh, could uh, try to put their eyes behind, and that is one of knowing what it's like to grow up under communist rule or socialist rule. My mother had shared many stories about what it meant for their family being split up by the regime uh, and how my mother, my grandmother had come to the United States, seek freedom and opportunity uh, to escape the oppression. My grandfather had stayed behind because he owned two gas stations, which the regime eventually confiscated, took from them along with his home. Uh, My mother never reunited with her father. And it was a very sad story about how, you know, communism destroys lives. And I think unfortunately thing occurred in Venezuela. You know, that time it was socialism. And really, my opinion, if you look at the difference between really what's the difference between socialism and communism, socialism is just a lighter form. Companies will then return to a free market capitalist society or they continue to use oppress, oppressive tactics um, like you see happening where they eventually lead to communism. That's where Venezuela is right now. They're sort of in that middle range, right, where they start off being democratic socialists. And then, um, unfortunately, they destroyed what was the richest country in South America. Okay, 94% of that population is now in poverty. Five million people, over five million people have fled. Um, the average Venezuelan lost 24 pounds uh, because of, they were starving. They didn't have things to buy. The, uh, the, the uh, currency there would be equivalent to uh, one, one million bolivars is, is, is 50 cents to a dollar here in the United States. Um, that has showed you how dangerous far left radical policies, how dangerous socialism is, and how it could take a very prosperous nation and just quickly destroy it over a matter of what two decades. Um, and so I think that that to me is the most alarming thing that we need to recognize here is you know people complain about our country, they point fingers at our country, but it's still the greatest country in the world. Yes. Uh, there are flaws in our history in particular, but, um, you know, it, we are the beacon of hope and freedom of opportunity for people around the world, which is why right now in Cuba, you see people marching with the American flag. Same thing in Hong Kong, uh, because we are that simple of freedom and we must preserve that because, you know, after the United States, there's nowhere really else to skate to. 
but you can have that same freedom and opportunity and liberties that we have. And each and every day, as we see some proposals from the far left, uh, it is scary, you know, because that's the path they want. You know, packing the court, for example, that's a bill that that's a proposal that came right out of Hugo Chavez's socialist handbook. That's what he did in Venezuela. It packed the court from 20 to 32 justices, 45,000 consecutive cases ruled in his favor. That's a perfect example. You know, but there are others, you know, radically changing election laws, uh, you know, uh, defunding the police, trying to dismantle our police departments. Uh, all of that would move us in the wrong direction. And so I think I think that is something I just want people to kind of understand. I think the best thing that people can do is talk to immigrants, talk to talk to people who have fled other countries, hear why they fled those countries and what, what they love about the United States that they chose to come here. Interesting, Reverend. Representative, if I may ask, there are some people who really don't think it's a serious problem. There are those who think that these voices are the fringe of uh, the political and social spectrum. Uh, Historically, you know, we have dealt with socialist invasion and socialism and communism for the last hundred years, going back to uh, post-World War I. Um, Mm -hmm. Is it just a fringe or how serious should we take all of this? Well, I think it was a, a fringe before they became elected to office, right? So now the, the, the fringe group um, have now elevated themselves to be members of the New York City Council, New York State Legislature, and even the United States Congress. And so I think that that's where they're in a position of really changing laws, of, of having politi- real political influence that has become a real threat. And my issue with many of my colleagues from the Democrat side in New York City is that they're not standing up against. I think they had an opportunity, the Democrats, who many I felt were, you know, very reasonable people, uh, moderates. And, you know, we worked in bipartisan way where we could in in Albany. Uh, But when when this threat of the socialist wing started coming, they never pushed back. You know, they never pushed back. They didn't take it seriously. And now, as a result, we're seeing that socialist movement growing, right? We have, we have not just Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in this city, but we have you know, two other uh, self-declared uh, members of the socialist uh, movement um, that have replaced other members. Um, and unfortunately, some of the other mainstream Democrats have decided to go more and more to the left because they're concerned about preserving their you know, future election, not to be primaried by the left. Um, and, and that is a major problem. I think that there was a mistake to not push back um, and, and really you know, preserve the, their party. But aside from that, look, I'm the only Republican in this city. So my job in general is, look, I've always said I'll work with anybody who shares the same goals as I do for the future of our city, our state and our nation. Uh, we find some common ground when it comes to, you know, um, our concerns about congestion pricing being another tax on commuters going into Manhattan. I've worked with Democrats and Republicans on that issue. Our concerns about restoring the SALT deduction, which is so important to middle class families that I represent, particularly homeowners uh, in our in our community. Um, you know, I've worked with Republicans and Democrats to push that to try to get that restored. Uh, so I think that, you know, where there's areas where we can find common ground, we absolutely should. Transportation infrastructure I think is another good area where we can work together. But when I see them doing radical things that I don't disagree with, I push back. Packing the court. When Jerry Nadler introduced that, I was the one in New York City who was that voice uh, giving that opposite viewpoint, which is why my seat is, is important, uh, because I am that only conser- more conservative voice. 
And I'm the only one giving that alternative viewpoint to ensure that we're actually represented in a bipartisan basis in Washington. I think that balance is important. Yeah. Um, but, so, you know, I, I yeah, go ahead. So for, for our audience, because it's two things, and, and Rabbi, if I may, you know, there was a New York Post article, uh, Rabbi, that, you know, we shared where Eric Adams, the um, presumptive, I'm trying to <laughs> find a nominee, right just uh, call nominee here at WABC. Yeah. yeah protect, yeah. protect us. You know, next mayor, <laughs> possible next mayor of New York City. And he came out against the DSA. He came out against AOC and uh, he, he, he drew the line and, um, you know, as a Democrat. And he said mm-hmm. that that's not what yeah. what's going to run New York City if he is indeed elected mayor. How do you respond to that? Well, I think it was a it was a it was refreshing. It was refreshing to hear that. And um, look, I think I think that the pendulum has has gone so far the last in New York City, and people are seeing the results of that. Right, spending has increased tremendously, yet the quality of life has not improved. Um, taxes have gone up, the cost of living, inflation, everything has gone up. Um, and also you see our infrastructure crumbling, which means that the city, the state, they're not spending money wisely in the areas that we really should be spending it. Um, and crime has skyrocketed as a result of many policies, right? We could blame certainly the bail reform in Albany, which when I was there, I voted against it. Not only did I vote against it, but then I fought very hard to get crimes such as manslaughter, felony drug charges. A homicide back onto the list in which a judge can use discretion again. And we were successful in getting that restored. But there's still major, major flaws with that bail reform law of Governor Cuomo. Um, and then on the city level, level, the mayor had cut the budget one sixth and he was in responding to the radical left, right, who had called for defunding the police. Um, and, you know, they tied the hands of our police officers in many ways, the various policies, they eliminated the plainclothes unit. And you saw the public response with 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 all the crimes that have increased, including you know every, everything from you know shootings to robberies, rape, um, car thefts. Um, they were responding and saying, "Hey, wait a minute, we do need cops on our street. This is crazy, and this has gone too far." And that is why seventy-seven percent of Democrats in our city said that the number one issue for them was public safety, that they want more cops in the street. And Eric Adams positioned himself as the law and order candidate uh, as a former police officer. He had the credibility to do that. Uh, and same thing on the right, right? Republicans uh, elected uh, Curtis Sliwa as their nominee because he had been somebody who, you know, expounded the guardian angels, had been really in the community, cleaning it up alongside Mayor Giuliani in the late 80s, early 90s. So what happens now? Um, I think it's refreshing that he's going after the squad. Uh, I think it's refreshing. He's saying he's going to improve. Uh, policing and 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 law and order in our city and reduce crime. Now let's see what he actually does. You know that that is I think the real test here because in Brooklyn in his borough, where he's borough, the borough president, you know during the summer when you saw looting and businesses being destroyed, you know I don't know that he was very vocal then. And you know even now with prostitution uh, increasing in certain parts of his borough, he hasn't he's been silent on those issues. And so you know I think like it's good to hear that he's gonna do these things if he's elected. But, you know, I think it's up to all of us if he is elected to ensure that he actually yeah. delivers. I think in our conversations with him, he knows very well in order to be a successful mayor in this city, he has to uh, confront the crime issue first, because if we're not safe, mm-hmm. nothing else can happen here. I want to go back to something that uh, I'd like you to respond to. For me, a defining moment 
in cowardice uh, was when Ilyan Omar made a statement about Jews with the Benjamins. You remember that? And Mm -hmm. you couldn't get a Democratic resolution to condemn her. Instead, we got this diluted resolution, you know, condemning anti-Semitism and racism, Islamophobia, a host of things. And I just don't understand that weakness. Are they so afraid? Do they really think they're so powerful on the other side that they just tremble when they have to make a statement? Yeah. And, I, and I've been consistent on this issue. I've, I'm, I've condemned individual on my side uh, when they've made some comments that uh, were offensive to uh, survivors of 9-11, the victims of 9-11 that I represent, mm-hmm. uh, as well as the Jewish community. Uh, and, and I've done the same now with uh, somebody like Ilan Omar, who really should not be on the Foreign Affairs Committee. Not just the anti-Semitic comments, uh, but she's given anti-American comments. And, and I think that, um, you know, this is a committee in which we are building relationships with the outside, you know, outside world here and ensuring that, um, you know, some are adversaries that we have to deal with. And we should not be, you know, criticizing our own country uh, when we are part of that committee. Uh, and I think that that's important for us to be united. It's one of the most bipartisan committees, actually. I'm very proud to be a member of this committee. Uh, we actually just did a visit to Middle East where we went to Israel. And I know there's been some articles about her not being included in that. I think that was for the best uh, because it was a very bipartisan committee. We do support Israel. Uh, we have a very strong relationship. Uh, we need to continue that. It's for our national security interests, not just Israel's. And, um, you know, but when somebody says comments like she does, not once, not twice, not three times, enough is enough, you know, yeah. and she shouldn't be on the Foreign Affairs Committee, period. Well, and what bothers me even more is that one of our elected officials who are Jewish don't say anything. What message does that send, right? You would expect people of your own community who usually, you know, out of the platitudes pre-election to stand up and say, you crossed the line and we will not tolerate this. I always say it's very easy to condemn anti-Semitism, but to condemn the anti-Semite, that requires much more coverage. And that was one of the criticisms that I had against, you know, my opponent who I beat, Representative Max Rose, because he was very silent on this issue of Ilan Omar. And then on top of it, you know, when, when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was comparing what was occurring at the southern border to concentration camps, uh, that was very offensive. And he had been silent on that as well. And I thought that that was wrong. And, and we have to be very clear with these terms. People cannot use these terms lightly. Nazi, racist, Hitler, concentration camp. They have meanings, okay? And they, they come mm-hmm. with a very important history that we cannot forget, we cannot dilute. And when you use these words, and I see it on social media all the time, it's one of my biggest concerns about youth, about social media, about, you know, is that, is that people just throw around these words because they don't like, let's say, uh, you know, a leader or an elected official. They refer to them as a, as a Nazi or they refer to them as Hitler, and you're, you're diminishing the history of millions of people mm-hmm. uh, who suffered at the hands of Nazis, but also and, uh, were killed by Nazis. But um, just this history, right? We can't, we can't diminish the value of those words, the meaning of those words. And I think that's, I'm afraid that's what's happening, and that is why you're seeing a rise in anti-Semitism. You're seeing a rise in, in these, this type of hate, hateful rhetoric that we're seeing in, in the world today. 
Reverend A.R. Bernard, Rabbi Joseph Pachasnik, the Rev and the Rabbi. Talk Radio 77 WABC and the all-new WABCRadio.com. Before, because I, I really want to talk about your trip to Israel, but before we go there, I just want to uh, circle back to uh, something that you said, and I'd like you to clarify for our listeners. What is the difference between Democrats packing the court and, and, and Republicans stacking the court with conservative judges? Well, so you have nine judges, and when the judges, there's a vacancy, right, because somebody retires or dies. The person of power picks the successor. So because the president at the time, let's say Donald Trump, for example, was able to fill a number of vacancies because they were open. That's very different than changing the rules of the court to increase the numbers. Now you can take control of it because you're not happy with how the chips fell uh, or who was appointed to fill those vacancies. So changing the makeup of the court uh, is exactly what, you know, Hugo Chavez did to tilt the scale in his direction. And he changed things from 20 to 32 justices. And that way, every single case ruled in his favor. So, you know, sometimes the Democrats have control of the court. Sometimes the Republicans have a little more control of the court uh, simply because it's it's not that they have control. It's that they're, they're more Republican appointees or Democrat appointees, right? But no one has control of the court if these appointees are truly independent. And that's what a justice should be. They should be independent people who are looking at the law as opposed to interpreting the Constitution, not trying to fulfill an ideological you know, goal or, to, or legislate from the bench. So even though you may have more conservative leaning justices or liberal leaning justices, uh, at any given time, it's never more than one, right? One or th- one or two going one way or the other. Uh, I think that you know, stack, packing the court, creating more seats on the bench to tilt the scale because you don't like the composite of the court at this time is very, very dangerous. Yeah. And that that to me yeah. is actually the most dangerous proposal that I've seen since coming to Congress. And there's been some real ugly ones, but that that one is the one that truly undermines who we are as a nation, our constitution, all of that, all the protections that we have as citizens. Remember, Rev, thank uh, you. a number of times. Yeah, no, I, I want to say thank you for clarifying that yeah. because people don't know and they hear, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of rhetoric around these issues, but not, not a clear voice. So thank yeah. you, uh, Representative. You know, Rev, you know, you've seen a number of times where judges who people thought were going to vote one way voted the other way. Uh, so I think as Representative said, if you have people Even conservative are, judges. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you have sure. people who are independent in their thinking, uh, who are not tied to a political party, but want to do what's right, you know, according to the Constitution. That's what matters most. I want to ask you about that trip right. to Israel. Uh, Congressman, here you see a new coalition that is comprised of every flavor, uh, except Ben and Jerry's, of course, uh, but every flavor. And I think that deserves much commendation that you can put together a coalition bringing different people with different minds 
who are going to work together. You have someone there uh, who is uh, an Arab Muslim, uh, yep. you know, and you have others, a person of color, and whatever you want you have in that coalition. Doesn't that warrant more respect for what's been accomplished here? Yeah, well, I think it's it's, it's certainly historic, um, and and it was uh, very interesting how they were able to pull this coalition together. It'll be interesting to see how long the coalition lasts. I think that's what most people are wondering right now. Now, we, we went over there in Israel. I'm on the Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, Representative uh, Greg Meeks is actually from New York City as well, representing Brooklyn. I'm sure the Rev knows him because it's mm. Brooklyn. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. He knows everybody yeah. in Brooklyn. Mm. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I I will say that, uh, you know, we had a nice group, bipartisan individuals who went over there, uh, and it was important for us to go there, to, first of all, considering the conflict that they had just occurred, and number two, considering the new coalition had been put together, new government. So to go there to really be able to reaffirm our uh, support for Israel, our strong relationship, you know, it's economic, it's educational, it's innovation, it's entrepreneurial, it's, it's security, obviously military. We have, we have many, many ties with Israel, and they are a very important ally. So we, we met with um, a, a few members across the range there, and no, it's really interesting to see how hopeful they are that they're going to be able to stick together. And I think right now their focus is really to work on domestic issues try to stay away from the more controversial stuff, but to focus more on like, let's say, you know, infrastructure issues and, um, you know, the budget they have coming up over the next couple of months that work, they have to work to put that together um, and economics and, and, and focus on those types of issues to get some wins under their belt uh, and see what they can do then after that. But certainly I think, you know, um, you know they, they have this close eyes on them. There are those who are looking to, look for any type of uh, opportunity to help dismantle this coalition. So I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say how long it will be. But what I will say is there were two, two takeaways or three takeaways, I should say, from our meetings with Naftali Bennett and the other leaders. leaders. One is they're very concerned about the United States reentering the Iran deal. They mm-hmm. uh, have grave concerns about this. They, at minimum, you know, there has to be improvements. I think that's something that a lot of the Republicans and the Democrats on this trip agree with, even those who had voted for the JCPOA. And I thought it was important for them to hear the Israeli government's concerns. You know, it's one thing to say, you know, we all agree, you know, Iran should never have a nuclear weapon. But what about them having the capability to build a nuclear weapon? And that's really what the JCPOA does not address, along with funding for terrorist organizations like Hamas, Hezbollah, um, and uh, hostages, American hostages that have not returned. Uh, so there, there's other issues there that really, really need to be addressed. Um, and, and we're hoping that the Biden administration does that. We're doing what we can Congress to try to push and provide some type of oversight and checks and balances on this area. The second thing was um, Hamas, obviously, is very concerning. Right now they have the ceasefire. But, you know, pa- the Palestinians have not had an election um, since 2006. And. There seems to be no intention to have an election. They're trying to say they're not having an election because Israel won't allow voting in East Jerusalem. But many believe that that's just an excuse because they are afraid they're going to lose to Hamas. Right. And then that would really create a major issue in that region. And so that was the second issue we we spent a lot of time focusing on. As you know, Hamas is taking control the Gaza Strip already and they're becoming uh, increasingly popular with the Palestinian people who are very frustrated with the status quo. Uh, government um, of Mahmoud Abbas. 
Um, and the third thing was the Abraham Accords, how much they want to build on the success of that. Very pleased with the help that President Trump provided in negotiating the Abraham Accords, and they want to see us help build upon that. And they feel that perhaps Indonesia, Oman, and maybe in the long term, Saudi Arabia could be additional partners to build on that. And that I thought was very, very encouraging to hear. And we've also heard that from, um, you know, like UAE, who is one of the partners, um, not UAE, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, UAE, mm-hmm. it was UAE. Uh, UAE, which is also one of the uh, people who are participating in the Abraham Accords. They're very pleased, too, with the economic activity that's brought to the region. So I think overall, it's done a good thing. It's been a good for, for them economically, but also from a security cooperation and also isolating Iran. So those are the three issues we really spent a lot of time uh, talking about. You know, we also went to Qatar and uh, visited the Air Force base there, met with some of our constituents are serving, which was really amazing. Um, Qatar has been a good security a partner, having you know, thousands of Air Force uh, men and women there as a as a home base for that region. So um, that was also a very important. And, and they, they're actually play, playing a big role in negotiating certain things um, around that region, trying to trying to bring some stability. Yeah, so me. let's let's talk about your faith uh, for a moment, Rabbi, if I may, because I, I uh, had opportunity to have this kind of a conversation uh, when the representative came to our church to address our congregation. And it's so important to understand that you can navigate all of the politics and <laughs> what goes along with that and still be a person of faith, still um, have a deep-rooted relationship with your faith, and it empower you and inspire you. Is is that true mm-hmm. for you? Sure. I, I think for me, um, I look at this as like, you know, I'm here, I'm doing my job, I'm doing what I think is in the best interest of my community. I'm very passionate about what I believe in. I'm very energetic in my fight uh, to, you know, improve our city, make it more safe, uh, protect taxpayers, uh, protect our freedoms and liberties, stop socialism. Those are those are really like my fights, right? But at the end of the day, I say, you know, a lot of this stuff is always controversial, right? And so at the end mm-hmm. of the day, I say, you know, when it comes to thinking, you know, I have, a, I have a difficult district. I took my seat from a Democrat. There's no guarantees that I'll be reelected, but that's okay. And I, I think that that's what, um, it's my faith that, that gives me that type of solace. Mm-hmm. I just, I do what I need to do. I fight for what I believe in. And if people elect me, it's great. But if not, I know that God has a better plan. That's where the faith comes in. And so I think that that's, to me, you know, as, as long as you have that sort of sense of calm about that, not worried about the future or, your reelection. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of elected officials don't have that. They actually are very concerned and will actually alter positions or they'll, they'll like I've said earlier, they move more and more to the left or more and more to the right because they're afraid of this or that. Yeah. You know, that's not, you know, we should we should really be here fighting for what we truly believe in, not about preserving, you know, our futures or our seats. And I think that, you know, I'm totally OK, which is why I was OK with leaving the assembly. and taking that risk of running for Congress in the first place. What you're there saying certainly was no guarantee. I was, I was running against an incumbent yeah. who outspent me two to one, but I still did it. And I, I, so Rabbi, it, it, I, no, I, I think there's a lesson here that is principle. Yeah, in my principle church, transcends it, popularity. You fight yeah, for principle. Well, yeah, it, if we were in my church, Rabbi, 
you'd, you'd hear someone screaming in the, from the back of the church, good preaching. <laughs> and but, uh, that was good preaching. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no, I'm glad to hear because I think there are so many people who just, you know, they, they live by the polls. They live by what's popular, not what's principled. Uh, and that, that is not good for the country. Or, or by power, if I could just throw that one in there, because, you know, when I, I'm on the Foreign Affairs Committee, as I mentioned earlier, and, you know, we do a lot of talking, we do a lot of work talking about needs. We have hearings talking about, you know, what's going on in other countries and in terms of like kids not getting an education or being malnourished or they don't have access to food or, um, you know, these people who are fleeing their homelands, uh, civil wars, all of that. And at the end of the day, it's all about power. Yeah. It's about because their government, when people have, that's, that's the thing that people need to understand. Government is too much control and power. And, and communists and socialists are the perfect example of this. They talk about everyone being equally. That never happens in a socialist communist society. The ruling class live like kings and queens and everyone else lives in squalor. It's what happened in Cuba. You know, and everything that comes into Cuba is taken by this regime and it's being weaponized against its own people. And that's what happens when Government has too much control and power, and it, and it, it, it really bothers me. Uh, it really breaks my heart to see how these governments, what they do to their own people, how, they, how can they can allow these things to happen to their own people while they're, you know, taking care of themselves and their ruling class. And I think that's just a, it's a really stark contrast. Yeah, Congressman, we're coming, we to the end of the, coming to the end yeah. of the segment. I just want to ask you, give us hope for the future, because... In a country so divided, Lincoln spoke years ago, the divide between intelligence and ignorance. Uh, but you see here, you know, people have positions that they simply refuse to come together and find, you know, that median place, that compromise. So what gives you hope for the future, assuming you have hope for the future? Look, I, I, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful, but I'm also cautiously optimistic. I, I, I feel that. Uh, look, one party system is, does not work. Okay. And unfortunately we're in that right now at the city level, at the state level, and now here at the federal level. And I feel that we do need to have a balance. So I'm hopeful that um, the electorate will see that there's need for balance in government uh, and that one party rule one way or another is not a good thing for the country. Um, but I think also we need to start sending representatives uh, to Washington that are going to be willing to cross the aisle and, and work with the other side when on, on basic things, like things like transportation infrastructure, like there's no reason why we can't have a deal. And, and things like that make me not hopeful when I see what's happening um, and how much division, something that should be so simple for both sides to support, can't even get that done. So I, I say there are days when I'm very hopeful, like when I was in on this foreign affairs trip, we were not there as Democrats, we were not there as Republicans, we were there as Americans. It was the first time, truly, since I was in Congress, that I actually felt that way, wow. that it wasn't us versus them, that wow. it was truly us working together. So I think the hope is when we have little victories where we do work together and we get little successes, that we try to work upon that. And, and you know, I think, you know, it's, it's, it comes and it goes, the hope. But um, at the end of the day, we just have to do what we believe is the right thing, and hopefully it'll be enough enough people here that are willing to do that same thing. Uh, Representative Nicole Maliotakis, 11th Congressional District. It's been a great conversation. And, you know, the Reverend and I have mastered the art of spelling both Maliotakis and Katsimatidis. And uh, <laughs> that's an accomplishment. It took us a little bit of time. I tutored the Rev, but we get it down. 
Thank you so much, and good luck to you. And I'm sure your family is so proud of all that you've done and will continue to do in the years ahead. Great. I appreciate both of your time. Thank you. Thank Have you. a great day. Thank you so much for being on the program. And we'll be back right here on 77 WABC with more of The Rev and The Rabbi. And the Rabbi. Reverend A.R. Bernard, Rabbi Joseph Potasnik, where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi, Talk Radio 77 WABC and the all-new WABCRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Rev, I think there's a lesson here. That is when there is a problem, don't procrastinate, don't postpone, deal with it immediately. If people thought that, you know, people who call themselves progressives and have views that are inconsistent with their own, if you really feel bothered by it, then you have a, a moral obligation to stand up against it. You know, it's like you see a problem in your home. If you wait too long, the problem can destroy you. But if you deal with it in its incipient stage, then you have a, a, a positive impact potentially. I agree, but we've got a context that experiences all these different forces coming at uh, these political leaders. I mean, Representative Maliotakis said it so clearly that people are concerned about being reelected. Uh, people are concerned about, you know, what's going to be the next step in their lives uh, in the political world. So uh, people shift what's popular. Yeah. I mean, look, she 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 won uh, election in a Democratic uh, community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, she's got Staten Island, Southern Brooklyn, which goes to show you that you know, she's only Republican, only female Republican as well uh, in the city of New York. But there are Democrats who hold on to certain social values, regardless we, of their political identity or party identity. You know? We've seen that here in the city elections years ago. Remember with the uh, Rudy Giuliani, with Mike Bloomberg. Uh, yeah. You know, there are those who say, and, and I think there's something to be said for looking at an election beyond the partisan label. What is good for the city? What is good for the state, the country? Not to just define your allegiance politically, but to define it right. based on, again, principle. What do you feel is the right solution, no matter what the label uh, attached to it uh, is? Some people, you know, they're mechanical uh, in their voting. They pull a lever because of one party. They won't go to the other side. Um, and that, that, to me, is not the right way to vote. Yeah, I, I, look, and it's a lot to think. Them has been designed for an educated electorate. And unfortunately, a lot of what's informing our voting population is the rhetoric that's on, you know, uh, television, that's on radio, that's, that's on social media. Uh, and people have to sort through it all. That's yeah. why, you know, I asked her to make the distinction between, you know, Democrats packing the court and Republicans yeah. stacking the court with conservative judges. And you brought out a good point that even when conservative judges are in place, 
you know, they have pretty much voted fairly. They, they've taken a look at both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily guarantee that it's going to be all Republican or all Democrat because of uh, who's on the court. See, I asked her about hope for the future for this reason, because when you see this kind of combative spirit, then there are people who say, you know what, the heck with it. I'm just not going to get involved. It, it's too polluted, and I want no part of it. And that's why you have such apathy in some of the elections. And when you have apathy, then anything can happen, and very often the wrong thing happens. So, I Well, think, let me ask you a question. Yep. Is the division on the street where we the people are, or is the division mostly in Washington? amongst the political establishment? Well, that's a good question. Because I'll tell you, I talked to people in the South. I was in Knoxville, Tennessee. You know, uh, I I was down in Texas. For the most part, people want to find common ground. They want to get along. They want to get beyond all this stuff. Yeah. The only thing I look at are numbers. When I see such a large number of people not voting, then I wonder how actively engaged are they in the issue. Now, of late, we can be encouraged. There's been more participation. But I do think uh, that we need to make sure that the people feel they're being respected, their views are being respected. And uh, I think some people just, you know, uh, the elected officials, some of them want to do what they want to do and the heck with the others. And that those others very often get turned off and say, I'm not going to bother. This has been a great conversation. Well, that's, and, why uh, that's why I'm glad, Rabbi, that. You know, we don't have to deal with politics in our line of work. No, 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 no whatsoever. Not, no, the profit world. No, no, never, <laughs> never. We can say whatever we want. There are no repercussions. No, you're right. Exactly right. All right. Thanks so much. But we have a, we, but we have a great listening audience who tune in every week mm-hmm. to enjoy a conversation with uh, two people who. Um, I think get along very well and try to present the issues. What yeah. do you think, Rabbi? I not only get along with each other, but care about the audience and want to make sure that their views are included. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, so I, I think it makes for a very scintillating uh, conversation where people can learn. So thanks so much. Look forward to being with you next week. With more of the Rev and the Rabbi. You got it.